Welcome to Sides Podcast. I'm Paul T. Carney. We'll get right to it. Our guest today is Haven Harrington of Main Event Sports. You might know him from his radio show, from his podcast, or some of the events that they promote around town. We'll get into everything that he does and a whole lot more in this conversation. Thanks again for joining us for Sides Podcasts, a podcast dedicated to uh, conversations with interesting people. Uh, Stick with us as we go forward. We've got a lot more interesting conversations to come. As always, you can check us out on iTunes or Stitcher. But for right now, here's our conversation with Haven Harrington. Enjoy. Where'd you grow up, Mr. Harrington? Uh, Well, I was born here in in Louisville, Kentucky, Mm -hmm. uh, right off of Jewel Avenue in uh, the West Louisville. Mm -hmm. I think that's the Shawnee neighborhood. Uh, then moved to Chicago with my mother, mm-hmm. moved to Wilmington, Delaware with my father, and then mm-hmm. came back here and spent from like fifth, like fourth, like fourth and a half, it came like in the middle of the fourth grade. Mm-hmm. So from the fourth grade on through high school, spent it here in Louisville, Kentucky, then went to Atlanta mm-hmm. for a year and then found my way on back. I didn't know you'd bopped around that much. I'm, assuming like, I'm assuming like the, the memory of Delaware and Chicago is kind of light though. Oh, actually, no. I, no? Actually, I remember uh, Delaware and Chicago like, quite vividly. Quite vividly. <laughs> what pops out? Um, just a lot of people I knew and the, the, the differences in situations. Living from the south side of Chicago, then going to Wilmington, Delaware, which is like across the river from Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. Living in a nice little duplex, not too far away from school. So it was, uh, it was pretty fun. I remember like riding a bus and a lot of my friends and neighbors... So I had a, had a blast. Mm-hmm. So when you got back to um, Louisville, you said that was fourth and a half. Yes. Ish. Yes. Went to Stone Street Elementary, way way out Dixie Highway. Hated it. <laughs> where'd you? Or then the usual Louisville question: Where'd you go to school? As in high school? Uh, Brown. Oh, that's right. Yeah, right I downtown. Completely forgot that. All right. So I'm curious about Brown. I've known now at least like a half dozen or so people. Kind of around our age, because you're how old? 44. Okay, you're a little younger than me. But probably in that same range, like from 44, 54, a bunch of people from Brown. So what's the deal with Brown? I know it kind of has this almost, you know, mythical uh, Brown luster. Is, well, you know, I've, I've been back to Brown since then. And mm-hmm. Brown now is not the same, it's not the same Brown as it was when I was, uh, when I went to high school. Or the same when, because my aunt taught at Brown. Mm-hmm. So I been at Brown since almost like Brown was founded in one way or another kind of popping in as a kid and mm-hmm. things of that nature uh, but really like when I was in middle school I spent a lot of time you know at Brown with my aunt going on field trips things of that nature now Brown's completely different back in those days you know Brown was like the uh, I guess like a hippie utopia I guess I would be like um, the best way to put it you know you could there were no desks in the classrooms mm-hmm. only like math and science had desks Everybody else had, like, tables and couches. Uh, you know, you called your teachers by your first name. Uh-huh. You know, you didn't need a hall pass to go use the bathroom. Just, I'll be back. Mm-hmm. Just walked out and came back on your own. Mm-hmm. A very, like, free form. And, and now, now, Brown still does this. Well, that part they don't do. Now Brown's more kind of traditional mm-hmm. now. They've kind of gotten away from those ethos. But, you know, when Brown used to try to get kids from everywhere. So mm-hmm. you have a mix. almost had an even mix male, female, and try to get kids from every geographic group in, you know, Jefferson County and kind of mix everybody together. It's a real small school. I think when I was at Brown, the high school was maybe like 198 people. Oh, wow. Okay. And at that time, we had the largest, I had the largest graduate in high school in 92, of 44. Mm-hmm. I think the class behind us beat us because they had like 46, maybe 47 people in a graduating class. So when when was it founded? Like in the seventies? Nineteen seventy four. Okay, perfect. <laughs> That's yeah, about right. It was it was definitely in the seventies on a different model. It was in a brown hotel. Mm-hmm. Uh, then he got they part went Aaron's and took half of Aaron's. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's where you know Brown still is today, and it was uh it was I'm not gonna lie it was it was awesome it was it was really awesome because you know when I, I ended Brown in high school, but I knew everybody from first grade to my my senior year, mm-hmm. and like you know everybody because you talk to the teachers by their first name, it was very informal, so you got to know like everybody and all their parents, their home situations. And that's why, you know, nowadays people call like the cult of Brown. Like all my friends think I belong to a cult because every time we see each other, 
there's an instant connection. There's instant, at least 30 to 40 minute long, no conversation. And mm -hmm. Brown was that place where, you know, if you came to school one day, I was like, hey, I'm gay. And I was like, yeah, okay. You came back the next day, I dyed my hair blue. Yeah, okay. Yeah. You know, that's, that's what you do. You know, you do your thing, I mm -hmm. do my thing. And, you know, we had some guys that just listen to hardcore hip hop, other guys just listen to the thrash and other guys who just listen to the Beatles, whatever, we just kind of just all meld together. So to me, like the obvious question there is, what does that do to somebody? I mean, it, you know, in general, how does that kind of reset your mind? But also in a town like Louisville, which from as an outsider, because I've only been here for 17 years, so I'm still kind of an outsider. You know, Louisville, pe people very proudly talk about it being a city of neighborhoods. But sometimes the flip side of that is it's a city of neighborhoods. You're from here. You're from here. Louisville's very cliquish. And Brown had cliques as well, because mm -hmm. it's just the nature of, you know, being in school, you have to go oh, yeah, cliques. Yeah. But the cliques were weren't hard and steady. Mm -hmm. So like most schools you have you're like you're like we went to Mail or one of the traditional schools, Butler or one of those places. It was you know, those schools are very cliquish and these are my core group and maybe like ten friends and I kinda know everybody, but we really don't do things together. This is my core group. Brown, you kinda had your same type of cliques where you kinda have, you know, people kinda bonded together, but they were a lot looser. So you always had people come in and out, in and out. And, you know, you would one minute hang out with this group and then that group and then this group and then that group. So you had a quote-unquote clique, but it wasn't as structured. It wasn't as stringent as other schools. So you kind of got to really know everybody, which is, uh, which is pretty huge. Yeah. Oh, yeah. In this town of neighborhoods. Because you had, you had, like you say, like cliques, which are a lot of times just affinity groups, people that have stuff in common. Yeah. But you still got that, I don't want to say mobility, but, you know. Yeah, you did. For me, that was the experience of growing up, but it's because I grew up in a small town. So this was kind of a small town within a big town, the yeah. larger. So after the experience of Brown, um, where'd you go to school? I went to Morehouse in Atlanta, oh, Georgia. Oh, that's right. I've forgotten all. We, I haven't talked to you in forever. Everything has just drifted. So you went to Morehouse. Mm -hmm. I went to Morehouse in Atlanta, and that was a small uh, HBCU, historically mm -hmm. black college university, maybe 4,000 mm -hmm. of that many folks. And that's one of the ones that's like down in the cluster downtown, right? It's like right in the heart of Atlanta, yeah. Georgia. Like yeah. right in the heart. It's a uh, Morehouse and across the street you have Spelman, which mm -hmm. is all female school. Morehouse is all male. Mm -hmm. Spelman's all female. Morehouse shared the quad with Clark Lane University. Mm -hmm. And then down the street you had Gammons Theological Seminary. And mm -hmm. then across the street from Gammons Theological Seminary you had Morris Brown. Mm -hmm. So you literally have about five colleges, about 14,000 total students, all pretty much connected by Brawley Street, <laughs> which is a street that ran like in between all of them. So you were there studying what? Uh, psychology. Really? Mm -hmm. See, all this stuff I didn't know. Yeah, I studied psychology, and then I uh, ran out of money, so I left and came back to UofL, and then uh, you know picked up psychology again, mm -hmm. and then realized I hated it. Because psychology at Morehouse was different because mm -hmm. it was more focused on, like, we had, of course, like the introduction of black psychology to mm -hmm. talk about, uh, you know, the psychology of racism and, you know, things of that nature, things I was really interested in. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, you kind of mirrored that with, you know, your typical things like Maslow's hierarchy needs and, mm -hmm. and things of that nature. And then to come to U of L was, was kind of clinical. It, it really mm -hmm. didn't, you know, touch me at all. Mm -hmm. So I switched to sociology because. I went through the book and I was like, oh, okay, a lot of classes are, are the same. Mm -hmm. I can easily do sociology on my credits or transfer. I won't need to have to take a whole bunch of other classes anyway. Mm -hmm. So eh, I, I got here much faster doing that. So I switched to sociology. Yeah. Did you did you have any sense of what you wanted to do with it at the time, or not? A clue. It was just pure fascination with pure fascination. Yeah. Uh, and I realized, and that's when I realized, rather than study <clears throat> individual people, I like to study like groups of people, which is pretty much the only difference between psychology and sociology. It goes yeah. from individual to groups. Yeah. Same kind of profile. And yeah. Uh, so you finished up and at that point, that was what, mid nineties? Nine, yeah. Around 96, 97. Okay. So not too terribly long before ish, before I met you. Yeah. About maybe like a year or two. Yeah. So what happened then? Uh, then after that, I went and worked, uh, my fraternity brothers. Mm hmm. Uh, Dr. Samuel Robinson, who was that time head of Lincoln Foundation, mm -hmm. and Andre Guest, who was vice president of Lincoln Foundation. I uh, needed a full-time gig, so I called my fraternity brothers. I was like, hey, I happen to run this very prominent foundation in town. Why don't you come work for me? So I was like, okay, yeah, that's that's cool. Um, so I went to work at the Lincoln Foundation. We became an HIV-AIDS mm -hmm. uh, coordinator, as well as I taught um, intro to computer class at the Western Branch Library. So that was, uh, that was interesting. Uh, the Lincoln Foundation is... 
Okay, what the Lincoln Foundation does, they provide scholarships for uh, academically talented but um, monetarily disadvantaged mm -hmm. uh, students. Mm -hmm. uh, so they were, you know, you had to have to keep your grades up, and you had like a little STEM. Even when I was there, we, we just started like a STEM program, kind of like when I was there. Mm -hmm. um, and they'll get you, you know, scholarships to go to whatever university you want to go to. You just had to keep coming back and show your grades and that summer programs that you can go through and things of that nature mm -hmm. to make sure you can keep your academics up, and they would help you, uh, you know, through school. And that was, a, that was a great learning experience. I worked on several other programs like Project Build, uh, you know, which you take kids like on the, to U of L's campus, kind of show them around, get them acclimated to college life mm -hmm. beforehand. We did Project Hope, where he went around to all the daycares and did puppet shows, things of that nature, to get mm -hmm. kids interested in, you know, continue their academic learning past kindergarten or you know, what, what kids do in daycare. So that was, that was a lot of fun. And then doing the HIV AIDS awareness, you know, they were one of the first uh, especially one of the first black organizations in town to kind of, you know, lead that charge. So that was mm -hmm. kind of interesting, you know, doing that because uh, my uh, my responsibility was uh, were men and uh, college because mm -hmm. I just recently graduated. So you know, mm -hmm. doing, you know, going back to the college campus, going back to U of L, mm -hmm. Spalding and Bellarmine, and show them how to, you know, why safe sex is important, right, how to use right. condoms and things of that nature. So that was a uh, that was a good time. So that was good times. So then. Uh, they had like 15 computers donated. And one, one of the great things about, about working for Dr. Robertson and uh, Andre Guess is that they gave me a lot of leeway. They mm -hmm. gave me a lot of, of freedom. And they gave me um, like a real sense of how to work independently. Mm -hmm. Because when you got the 15 computers you know, donated, you know, they never had like a, a computer admin. Mm -hmm. You know, and, uh, Andre Guess, he's a, he's, he's a very technically sound guy. And like really up on his technology, so he kind of networked the computers together. So when he got these fifteen donated with the printer, there was like, mm -hmm. well, I want a computer lab. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. And mm -hmm. I thought they would, you know, call some IT guy in to do the computer lab and all this other stuff. No, they was like, I tell you what, here's our credit card. Go to Barnes and Noble. Why don't you get some books on networking and uh, <laughs> let's see what you can do. So that's what we did. I went and got a book on computer networking and computer repair and sat there till like about. I think Andre and I, we worked at the foundation about 5 or 6 o'clock in the morning. I and mean, when we got off work, we stayed there literally like the 5 or 6 o'clock in the morning just mm -hmm. reading a book, mm -hmm. teaching myself TCP, IP, network protocols, right. printer protocols, <clears throat> like everything in networking. The server caught on fire that night, so I had to put it out. <laughs> so that was interesting. Uh, but yeah, but we got we got the computer lab up. Yeah. that's <laughs> And that's how I taught myself how to do like... That network admin. Mm -hmm. So for like a year and a half, I was a network admin. When I worked at the, uh, we had me teach computer class at the Western Branch Library. No syllabus, no nothing. I was like, eh, you're a college grad. You worked on computers. Go ahead, knock yourself out. Teach, mm -hmm. teach computer classes. So I had no idea who was showing up. I just showed up at the library one day. They mm -hmm. put me in the basement with a couple of computers. And I was like, oh, here you go. So I developed a syllabus. I realized a lot of people coming in for computer classes were, were older, like 65. And most were like 65 on up. You know, it's weird teaching somebody like how to use a mouse, something I, you know, I kind of instinctively picked up in elementary school. You know, these guys never used a mouse before. It's like, how do you double click? And, you know, trying to teach double clicking. Like, when to double click, when to single click. Mm -hmm. When to right click, when not to right click. And what's a folder? And it's, it was interesting. It was interesting. But uh, it was awesome. Mm -hmm. It was really awesome. So I got to design a program myself, raise some money. I was able to get like four computers donated. Mm-hmm. So we had four computers in the library instead of the two. So yeah. it was, it was good times. You kind of jumped into like exploring new territory, like from the beginning. It sounds like yeah. Which leads me to the next thing. When I first met you, we were I was doing the film film and video thing, and you were just kind of getting into it. I think just got into it. Just got into it. So where was the leap from Lincoln Foundation and becoming a tech guy to wanting to make movies? Man, you know, there's, they're kind of all related. Yeah. You know, you know, making movies is very technical. Oh, yeah. And I think a lot of people kind of get lost in the, in the whole artistic side of, you know, how's it look, how's it feel, how's it move you. But it's still a very, a very technical oriented. And I love the technology. So mm -hmm. from teach computer class, teach myself to be the admin. But yet, you know, being a, a creative guy anyway, a guy mm -hmm. who even I can't draw with a lick. <laughs> But, uh, you know, a guy who you know, makes his flyers for, you know, parties and who used to, you know, write stories anyway, mm -hmm. it was kind of like a natural kind of segue. And it was always something I wanted to do. You know, I've always yeah. wanted to, 
to direct, you know, which is kind of weird because, like, I still do that now. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, like, you know, I still, everything you guys taught me back in the long time ago, <laughs> I still use. Yeah. Like, constantly. And it's just amazing. Even though I do sports talk radio now, you know, we have a, uh, a podcast and we do, uh, like, we just started a YouTube show just, like, in February. So, the composition, mm-hmm. rule of thirds, like, everything I learned with you and Philip, I still actively use, like, how to edit. Like, I still actively use it. When I worked on a campaign for Tyler Allen for mayor, like, I did all the digital videos for the campaign. It has been a, <laughs> a, a super valuable skill that I use, yeah. like, all the time. You know, it's funny for me because I don't, with the exception of I do a little bit of uh, political stuff with video um, with the Kentucky Initiative, Mm -hmm. I don't do anything else. When I bailed out of it, I bailed entirely. But it's kind of been the same thing for me since then. Like the technical skill set, it's almost like everything that was video editing and all that sort of thing became the template for so many other technologies. But also just that way of um, the way you build meaning and narratives and all that from, you know, from, from tracks and from splicing and all that kind of, oops, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. It stays with you. All right. So for you, I don't even know how to go timeline wise from here. So this was the early aughts when you were doing this. Yeah. You, you mentioned your, uh, your sports media franchise, your, your kingdom, your empire. What was, so when did, when did that first start? Uh, let me see. My daughter is now ten. Is she ten? Yeah, oh she's ten now. God. So it was like a year before she was born. Okay. I was working a sprint. Uh, me and my buddy Carl we was like, you know, it'd be kind of cool. Like if we could do like a, like a boxing show because we both mm-hmm. love boxing. And I don't, I don't know why we got on this tangent mm-hmm. of like doing a boxing show. It was me, Carl, and a guy named uh, John Duval. I was like, man, boxing would be awesome. You know, Louis the home of the four heavyweight champions, the only city in the world to have, you know, four heavyweight champions. People mm-hmm. love boxing. Man, let's do it. And I was like, hey, you know, I have a lot of experience shooting TV shows. So I was like, you know, I, I can do this. So, you know, we called around. Uh, I was making pretty good money in Sprint. The three of us got together. And I was like, you know, we could work at, uh, what was it? I think it was like Insight Cable, Story Cable, whatever. You know, because we talked about maybe doing like a real show. And we were salesmen at the time. I was like, yeah, you know, we get an hour. On TV, like at three, four o'clock in the morning, because mm-hmm. a couple hundred dollars. I'm sure we can raise some sponsorship money to kind of cover that. Yeah, mm-hmm. let's let's do it. So you know, we started to do it. We kind of worked on air and kind of wrote out kind of like a little pilot, what it looked like, you know, how we'll do interviews and then things of that nature, and kind of going through the mechanics. And I bumped to my buddy uh, Jerry Hazard, who worked at WLOU, and he was like, "Why spend that kind of money at you know doing TV when you can do radio?" And I was mm-hmm. like, "I've never done radio. I've done voiceover work, but mm-hmm. I've never done radio." He goes, oh, I could teach you. It's no problem. It's like a tenth of the cost. I'm like, oh, I'm sold. <laughs> well, let's do this. Let's go ahead and let's do this. So yeah. I went to uh, Community Ventures. Mm-hmm. They have a little program where you teach you how to write your uh, write, write a business plan, and you need like a $1,500 grant to start your business. Mm-hmm. So I was like, well, you now pay almost like the half of your airtime. We can mm-hmm. get sponsored for the rest. Yeah, let's, let's go ahead. So I went through the class, got the money, went to LOU, paid the money. Got our airtime, got our block on Saturday from 6 to 7. And uh, we built this show around our buddy John Duval because he was like a boxing savant. Guy's a boxing savant. And plus, he's funny. We all <laughs> mesh like really well together. So we get up there, we're sitting down, it's like 15 seconds before airtime. And John's like, I can't do this. And bails. <laughs> and just like completely, de- he, when I say bail, he like got up, got, went to his car. And left. I thought it was going to kind of go, kind of get his you know, butterflies on, come back in. No, right, he right. went to his car and left and like literally bailed. So me and Carl were there like, okay, well. And this is live air. This is live. Yeah. So, well, let's, let's talk boxing. So we went through our show and after like around 15, 20 minutes, we took our first commercial break. And I'm like, I'm, I'm, out, of, I'm out of topics. I'm done. Mm-hmm. I, I can't do this anymore. I'm done. And he looked at me and was like, yeah, I'm done too. And I was like, well, we got 45 more minutes. What are we going to do? And I was like, I like football. You like football? I love football. Let's talk football. <laughs> and, you know, the general main event sports show was born at that moment. At that time, it's called Heavy Hitters. We had his buddy do a logo for us, a little boxing guy mm-hmm. for Heavy Hitters. Uh, and then we got contacted, like, about a couple months later. There was a group of DJs in town that worked at B96.5, like their mega mm-hmm. station here. And they were like, we're the Heavy Hitters. We had that name first. No, uh, we got to change our name. Okay, we can, we can change our name. And the main event was born. And this was, again, about when? About was 2000. About, no, 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 no,
both a plan and out of sheer desperation yes. kind of combined in a beautiful union there. And then. Yes. <laughs> you know, for a number of years, it was like literally just a hobby, you know, yeah. kind of something yeah. we can go on air, talk about sports, mm-hmm. and then, you know, we can maybe get some press passes and go to some of the local events for free. And that was good enough. You know, mm-hmm. it wasn't really taxing us too much, so we could easily, you know, chip in and support the show and, and keep it moving. So when did it start to grow and why? Uh, well, actually, really started to kind of take off about like two, about three years ago. It really kind of started to take off. And you know, we've been a while. We got finally got proof of pes- press passes for U of L, UK. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we went to the NBA, the NBA uh, finals. So a couple of games there. We went to the NHL finals in Detroit. You know, we started doing a lot of stuff. And I was like, maybe actually make a little, maybe make, you know, make some money off of it instead of it being a hobby to drain on resources. <laughs> So we kind of started working, you know, towards that mm-hmm. that goal and that plan. Um, and then June of last year, almost a year from now, I was let go from AT and T. So I've been trying to make this thing uh, a like a full time gig since then. For a while, didn't you guys kind of dabble in promotion a little bit too? Yeah, we did. We did. We did. A, yeah, we worked with uh, Dennis Swift, a mm-hmm. good friend of mine from uh, Radcliffe, Kentucky, mm-hmm. who had a uh, MMA show. What was it? Ring of Rage. And uh, so we did about three shows, Expo 5. All of them sold out, like, mm-hmm. very well attended. Uh, but he just kind of got burnt out, and he was like, kind of like the lifeblood. Because mm-hmm. the arrangement we had was we were promoted. Since he knew other fighters and you know, kind of did the stuff anyway, he would he could do that in. So he could mm-hmm. get the fighters. He knew all the, you know, how to get the cage, things of that nature. But with a lot of local promotions, boxing or MMA, they it's always hard for them to get sponsorship. Yeah which is one of the things that we could do. And they couldn't right. get any airtime, which is one of the things that we could provide. So it was, it was a match being heaven for like about, God, it was about six, seven months. Mm-hmm. I don't know why I thought that, that, that you had kind of gone in that for a while. but that... Well, because we've actually been covering like MMA and boxing for like seven years now. So we would go to all the shows and we would have a lot of those guys on the show mm-hmm. and we would help promote their fights and, you know, get sponsorship and stuff for them. So we've helped, we've helped out like a lot of promotions right, right. and – you know, a lot of guys kind of, you know, trying to get their, their show going. So we're really kind of maintaining the media side of things. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so fast forward now, uh, now we're working with the uh, Vander Holyfield and real deal promotion. So now, you know, we took uh, Vander Holyfield out throughout the West end, mm-hmm. kind of show them around, uh, took him to the Gallup Gala, which is, uh, the Down syndrome of Louisville, which mm-hmm. is a, uh, a nonprofit that we like to work with here at the, at the main event sports show. So it's been, it's been quite the journey. I have to ask, how is Holyfield? He's, he's like really funny. Yeah. Holyfield, he's a, he's a really personal guy. You know, he hasn't been punch drunk, so <laughs> all those guys out there worry. Well, to get punch drunk, you got to get hit more. He, yeah, he's, he's, he's a pretty good defensive that. fighter. So, yeah, Holyfield, he's really a guy. He has a great team around yeah. him, uh, which is awesome. And I'm, I'm kind of excited to see, like, the watch real deal grow. Mm-hmm. Because like we went to like his very very first fight, which is at Freedom Hall, which was last year. Mm-hmm. Now that the Yum Center and is getting bigger, uh, they're working with a local uh, trainer slash promoter here in town named James Dixon, who mm-hmm. owns Louisville TKO. Yeah, uh, his son signed last year. Another another kid from their gym signed earlier this year. So you know, it's, it's interesting to see like watch these guys from when we first met James Dixon and his son in his gym. You know, I think his son maybe had like. 30 amateur fights. Now he has about 60 or 70 amateur fights. And now he just turned pro. Now he's 2-0 and as a professional you know, boxer and kind of see that maturation, kind yeah, of see that yeah. whole process. And even on, on the MMA side, watching, you know, because we know all the gyms here, you know, watching guys kind of make that, you know, progression, how they start as amateurs, some of them turn pro, some of them have moved away. Uh, we watch a couple of them fight on UFC. Uh, a couple of guys fight for Bellator, MMA, and mm-hmm. some, you know some other bigger, you know, promotions. It's kind of like just watch them, you know, kind of watch them grow. From like I remember, you as a skinny kid in the gym, <laughs> and now you're you know, like you're a big hulking guy. So the the kind of local fight scene, it's still alive. Oh, it's it's very much alive. You know, it was weird before. Wow, when we first started, it, MMA was huge. Kentucky was like the fourth most active state for mixed martial arts fights. Only thing they kept us from being higher is there weren't enough commissions to go around and sanction all the fights. Gotcha. Uh, that was re- really the only thing that kept us like out of like probably being like second. Uh, out, out and up, I think like California was like one. So we're mm. like, you know, like right up there are much, much bigger states. That's amazing. Um, it's kind of died down a little bit. And I think now in this state, there's maybe like two, like two really big M- MMA promotions. Mm. When we first started at its height, about three, four years ago, they were like, 
about seven or eight. So he knocked him down to two. But on the flip side, the boxing side, which was almost non-existent when we first started. When mm -hmm. we first started coming fight seven years ago, there was one gym that was Doolin's Gym in Portland. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that was it. Now there's like seven or eight just dedicated boxing-only gyms. Was that the gym that we went to that one time to interview? Um, Biscuit. Biscuit. Was that the place? No, no. No, uh, okay. Yeah, Biscuit's gym opened later. So he was oh, okay. like, right. Doolin was first and Biscuit came through. And okay. then you, you just saw this like a... Boom. It's just a boom. It yeah. just like took off. I wondered about that because I know when I first moved here and people always said, oh, boxing's dead here now. It's not a boxing town anymore. And for a long time it wasn't. It wasn't. But now it's, and it's just amazing. It's, it's coming back. And, you know, I always, always um, you know, my other role is neighborhood activist. Mm -hmm. You know, I always you know, talk to people about, you know, how to revitalize neighborhoods, things mm -hmm. of that nature. And kind of being a sports guy, I've always been like, you know, sports is a great way. Mm -hmm. to kind of like revitalize especially these urban neighborhoods and you know my thing was like you know boxing would be just like a great way to do it and you know I urge you know like folks in the city you may want to look at you know reopening up the community centers with boxing gyms and things of that nature because you know that's what really you know in the 50s and 60s that's what kind of really turned a lot of things around a little yeah, so yeah. like if you look at you know like if you look at old newspaper clips like from the 40s, like from the 30s and 40s. So I was like wayward youth, things mm -hmm. of that nature. Mm -hmm. So around the 40s and 50s, uh, the cities, you know, put boxing gyms mm -hmm. in a lot of the community centers, like Baxter Community Centers and Russell and other places. And used like retired police officers and stuff to kind of man those those mm -hmm. gyms. So the city put the money behind it. You fast forward to, that was like I said, around the 40s or 50s. So when those kids, you know, those parents, when those, you know, those parents were there, they, they brought their kids to the gyms in like the late 50s and 60s, you know, that's when you had the boxing boom in Louisville. And that's when you had uh, the Night of Future Champions, which was either at the Louisville Gardens or the Convention Center. That was a weekly show mm -hmm. shown on television. It was like mm -hmm. every Saturday morning. Almost like wrestling was like Saturday morning. You know, you had boxing. It was like local boxing and you could go down and pay a couple of dollars and watch you know, a bunch of local fighters. You know, and from that investment, you had three heavyweight champions come out of Central High School. You know, Gray Page, Jimmy Ellis, and, and of course, Muhammad Ali, all out at, at yeah, he, one high school. And he, I, they, did, they did okay for themselves. They did okay <laughs> for themselves. And, you know, and it's kind of looking back now, just like how much money did that generate, especially like in mm. the African-American community, having those guys on air, traveling, becoming mm. professional fighters, other guys from this town becoming professional fighters, you know, coming back and then reinvesting their dollars back in the community or training and trying to open their gyms, things of that nature. So you had that, you know, you kind of had that going there and the city just kind of disinvested once again into those community centers. You know, boxing took a low. Now it's... Coming back around. Now that's, that swing's come back around. But I always thought that was a great way to, uh, you know, to like really in, invest. Mm -hmm. And I always thought that and I always thought that Louisville kind of missed the boat on so many avenues of wealth generation and yeah. neighborhood building that we missed out on. I think now, you know, 2018, you kind of seeing the the fruit, I guess, if you will, right. of all those missed opportunities come right. back to get you. Like I said, boxing's coming back not as strong as it could if the investment has still been there all the time. And but it's coming back, and you know, hopefully, you know, be like it was back in the day where you mm. had your shows, you know, constant big shows locally televised, mm -hmm. maybe a couple of national fights three or four times a year that's shown on HBO and Showtime to be boxing mm -hmm. channels and, and things of that nature because that, um, you know, that is a good cottage in, in industry. And mm -hmm. I think a lot of people really don't understand how that side of sports touches like so many oh, yeah. you know, other things in this town because you know, with the big boxing matches, of course, you know, it's great for radio because you have to have commercials. Mm -hmm. You know, a bunch of your graphic designers, your printers, you mm -hmm. know, who make the, the flyers, things of that nature. Yeah, it trickles out. It trickles out. You have the parties and things of that nature. Then <clears throat> if the fighters live here, they tend to reinvest back in mm -hmm. community and youth groups. So it just kind of feeds upon itself. So yeah. trying to get it to that point. You know, we were almost at that point like in the 70s. Mm -hmm. We kind of let it go. But you know, hopefully we can get it back, back to, to that point to where it's of self, uh, you know, as a self-petroating kind of mm -hmm vehicle well and besides seeing that like straight economic investment that comes around like that what that offers to kids and, I, and I, i'm curious what you think about this part of it obviously you know it teaches discipline and it teaches them about taking care of themselves and i don't mean like in a self-defense way i mean like you know their health wellness that kind of whole thing 
uh, stick-to-itiveness and in a different way than, you know, team sports and all that because it teaches you about a certain self-sufficiency. Do you think, though, that at the time, like it almost makes me think of two things. On the one hand, attitudes about boxing started shifting kind of in the post-Ali period. You know, when you get into the 80s, people start getting almost seemed like the people started getting a little squeamish mm-hmm. about it. You know, and at the same time, as far as that community involvement level, I know so many cities just stopped putting money into community centers and things like that. Was that just a real unfortunate combo, or was there yeah, more to it than that? You know, it, it was that convergence. Um, you know, then you had, of course, you know, this is a bit of basketball town. A lot of kids that, that were boxing, quote-unquote, be heavyweights. You know, your kids around 6 foot to 6'4", or back in those days. Mm-hmm. Um you know, become boxers, but then other avenues open up, like football start opening up, basketball opened up, mm-hmm. uh, and became more prominent, especially in the 70s and 80s when Louisville started winning national championships, mm-hmm. so things kind of changed there. Then you had the disinvestment in the community centers. Uh, then you had, you know, Ollie having Parkinson's and, you know, kids, you know, parents not wanting to put their kids into, you know, boxing and other pugilistic sports, I understand completely. Yeah. So you kind of had that, that whole you know, kind of convergence, kind of kind of killed it. But boxing has always been there. Do you think the attention that, that MMA stuff has been getting over the last decade or so, do you think that's helped boxing in some ways? Because both, you know, building a new audience for any of the, the pugilistic sports, but also um, people who were like, oh, man, this MMA stuff's way too much. Oh, boxing seems much nicer. <laughs> uh, you know, I, boxing has kind of always been there. Yeah, yeah. It's just that boxing needed some heroes. Yeah. And once Mayweather, Pacquiao, Cotto, those guys came around, then you had recognizable faces, you had villains, mm-hmm. and you had guys you could like. So, like, boxing has always been there. Like, like mm. if you look at pay-per-view numbers. That's and true. That's things true. of that nature. Boxing, yeah, it took a, a big step back from the Thrill of Manila in, in those days, but... But just public perception. Yeah, but but Mayweather's kind of brought back. Now, public, public perception is that... Uh, you know, boxing is actually behind MMA. Hmm. Well, like, if you talk to the boxing guys, you talk to guys who do MMA, they'll tell you it's, it's the exact opposite. Mm-hmm. You know, boxing is still where it's at. Mm-hmm. That's because there's competition in boxing. Mm-hmm. You have several large promoters mm-hmm. that compete for fighters. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot more money that way because no competition, more money comes into the system. Right, right. You have like five or six different governing bodies. And within those governing bodies, they have their little list of fighters and things of that nature. So you have a a system on top of system of competition where in MMA you literally have UFC's the big dog and then you have Bellator like I said uh, other promotion I, I can't remember you know it's hard to compete with the UFC because they just choke out everything else yeah alright so back to you so you're busy building 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 the media empire that you have at some point so <laughs> at some point you you how do I say that you, it's not like you just said hey I'm going to be you know community activist, community spokesperson, whatever. It's not like, it didn't seem like that was something you injected yourself into. It seemed like you were responding to just what was happening around you. And then from that, you've become more of a identifiable person, yeah. figure, presence. How, how did that really, how do you see that as having, having happened? Because you were telling me, like, you're, after this, you're going over to public radio to, to talk about... Transportation, well, transportation issues and how it affects of uh, people in low-income communities. Yeah. So, so. Uh, you know, I've always, you know, I've always been activist. Yeah. Like, even when I was at U of L, even in high school, I've always been, you know, that type of guy. I always wanted to kind of stick up for the little man, mm-hmm. to kind of right the wrongs that I could see in the system. Because my personal belief is it doesn't have to be this way. Yep. You know, it doesn't have to be this way. So why is it this way? You know, we can we can change it. And rather than wait for somebody else to mm-hmm. to ferment that change, I believe that you should be that change. So I've actually set out to you know to change things. And I moved to the Russell neighborhood where I live now, West Louisville. Um, you know, you, you said originally you grew up in which neighborhood? Um, mostly here. Mostly in J Town. J Town, okay. Mostly in J Town. When I worked in Lincoln Foundation, I lived in J Town. Right. Uh, but I made a conscious effort to move to you know, West West Louisville, mm-hmm. and um, and Russell is a, and again I, you know I'm not from here, still trying to learn, um, but Russell has a pretty significant uh, history in terms of Louisville in general, but I mean especially black communities in Louisville. Yeah, Russell used to be like I guess like the Harlem of the South uh-huh. at one point, mm-hmm. 
you know, one point, you know, Russell was, you know, where the, I guess, where like the wealthy, a lot of your wealthy African American state, especially on what they call, used to call it Oatmeal Alley, mm-hmm. which was a Muhammad Ali and Chestnut. Mm-hmm. So even like we still right up and down Muhammad Ali and Chestnut, you see these large, you know, mansions. Oh, yeah, and that's yeah. where, you know, guys like I Willis Cole, who started a little bit of Fender, uh, William Worley, who mm-hmm. also had a uh, local newspaper here. Of course, Harvey Russell, the neighbor was named after. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, that's where all of your, the May Street kid, that's where all of the, you know, your prominent, wealthy, you know, like African-American stayed on those, you know, in, in that neighborhood. And for a time there, you know, Russell was, you know, the trendsetter for not only the state, but a lot of things like in the country mm-hmm. as far as civil rights and things of that nature, you know, because, you know, Louisville's the place that has the first full service African-American library in the country, the Western mm. Branch Library, where oh, right. I taught my computer classes. Right, right. And that was Thomas Blue and Albert Mazik. Mm-hmm. You know, those guys lived on the same block. Uh, Mazik lived on 16th and Chestnut. Blue lived on, no, Mazik lived on 17th and Chestnut. Blue lived almost on the corner of 18th and Chestnut. You know, and those guys founded the Western, you know, Western Branch Library. And then after they founded Western Branch Library, I believe in 1905, they founded the Eastern Branch Library, which was in Smoketown. You know, and these were all Carnegie libraries, and these were the places where, for the longest time, like every black librarian had to train, almost train like here, mm-hmm. because this was on the, literally the only full-service library in the country, you know, was here. And then right across the street, you had the Knights of Corinthians Temple, which now is owned by the YMCA. You had a oh, movie right, theater, yeah. a bowling alley in there. You had the, at that time, the most prominent architect Mm-hmm. The most prominent black architect in the in, in the country, maybe even the world at that mm-hmm. point, Samuel Plato. Mm-hmm. You know, he lived on 24th Muhammad Ali. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, all these prominent guys doing really, really big things. You know, William Worley, he challenged Louisville's uh, housing segregation laws and bought a house from a white family in Portland, where mm-hmm. that time was de-restricted, where you know, African-Americans couldn't buy houses right. in certain neighborhoods. So he bought a house, which was illegal, so the city sued him, and... That fight all, went all the way up to Supreme Court, and was actually the, the, the NAACP's first ever victory in front of the Supreme Court, and kind of got the ball rolling for Brown versus Board of Education, mm-hmm. and then all the other lawsuits that mm-hmm. the uh, NAACP and Thurgood Marshall, you know, would launch. You know, that all started, you know, here. Right, right. I have to admit, I didn't know that. Yeah, I mean, it was, it's <laughs> a lot of, uh, you know, it's a lot, a lot of history. Uh, yeah, you know, Quinn Chapel was a very progressive um, you know, congregation at one point, which is still around. Mm-hmm. You know, the original structure was, right, what would have been Ninth, what they call Ninth and Walnut, which is now Ninth and Ali, which is now, you know, the, the street. Right, right. Uh, but that's where their original church was, and they used to be a, like, really big underground railroad. So they used to, because the steamboats, um, and of course, you know, with Doc here and in Louisville, so they would ferry the slaves from other parts of Kentucky, mm-hmm. hide them away on the steamboats, Take him up river to Cincinnati, in off of Cincinnati, and that's right. where Quinn Chapel is really big in that. And then you have, you know, it's just a lot, a lot of history in Russell. That can just go on and on and yeah. on about, yeah. you know, famous jazz players like during the um, the Harlem Renaissance. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, this is where Zora Hurston, Langston Hughes, they all come to Derby to hang out yeah. in, in Russell. Yeah, this was like their spot. You know, and again, I think it's one of those. Uh, it's, too often the case it's one of those aspects of the history here that I don't people I don't think people talk enough about so for you 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 pretty consciously planted yourself in Russell yeah was it pretty much from the get-go I'm gonna I'm gonna move to the neighborhood I'm gonna get involved in the, the politics of the neighborhood and see what I can do to help or I want to live in that neighborhood and then once you get there you start thinking I see I see what needs fixed and, and I see what I can do I know a, a little bit of both. Yeah. So my grandfather lived in Russell. He had a mm-hmm. barber shop on the corner of 24th and Madison for like 60 years. Even though I lived in J-Town, I spent all my time with my grandfather because my dad would go to work. He would drop me off with my grandparents, and I would spend like all summer <laughs> everywhere running around yeah. you know, with my cousin on the mean streets of Madison. So that really was your neighborhood. Yeah, it was my neighborhood. So yeah. when I moved back, I, could, I saw the changes from... As a kid, when we had like CSC department stores open on 15th and Jefferson, mm-hmm. you had an AMP that was like on 16th, well, like 22nd and Jefferson. And of course, I remember when Sears was still on 9th and Broadway. You know, I had all these, the Big A shopping center. Center. I remember going bowling mm-hmm. and you had like department stores and 
it was a completely different neighborhood. And now when I go back, it's like it's, it's all gone. Mm-hmm. You know, it's all gone. CSC is now a halfway house. Yeah, uh, with three hundred beds, and it's just uh, yeah, and my, and my heart breaks. And yeah. I was like, it doesn't have you know, it doesn't have to be this way. You know, why why is it this way? Why you no? Know, why have we disinvested in West Louisville? Why have we mm-hmm. disinvested in a whole segment of population? Right. You know it. Why it doesn't have to be this way? Mm-hmm. So what can we do to change it? What can we do to make it better? What can we do to make this more equitable? Because mm-hmm. it doesn't have to be this way. You know, part of the answer to that is going to come from the answer to that for every city in America, it seems like, because there's so many similarities of trajectory of what's happened, not only to most cities in terms of their downtowns and you know general urban in- environments, but also especially to black Americans, black American communities. Is there something different, though, that you see about Louisville in terms of not only how it happened, but how to turn that around? Not so much different. Louisville's kind of like the same, and Louisville followed the same program that other cities have followed. It's very mm-hmm. intentional. Mm-hmm. So, like, what you see in Russell, what you see in Shawnee and Portland and, you know, all the neighborhoods west of 9th Street was intentionally done. Right, right. It wasn't just happen chance because right. the folks not working hard or the property values are low, so it attracts low-income folks. That's not the case. Right. The way West Louisville is now, the way... When you go like the south side of Chicago mm-hmm. or the south side mm-hmm. of Philly, and you see, you know, these other impoverished, predominantly African American neighborhoods, was because they this was intentionally done. This mm-hmm. was policies and procedures mm-hmm. set out by metro government, yeah. you know, with the purpose of devaluating and disenfranchising a group of folks yeah. and a section of town. So if you can purposely do it, then you can purposely undo it. Right. Who did the the redlining story a couple of months ago? Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, Poe, uh, Joshua Poe, and uh, yeah. Gina Dunlap with the City of Louisville kind of done the redlining study. Mm-hmm. They kind of you know talk about redlining and you know the act of you know keeping you know blacks in one neighborhood and whites in other neighborhoods mm-hmm. and you know things of that nature through the process of redlining. You know, but it's, it's much more than that. Like if you sure. look at every other city and you look at the process of urban renewal mm-hmm. in like the '50s, '60s, and '70s. Right. Right. The only neighborhoods, yeah, the only neighborhoods that were targeted by urban renewal were African American mm-hmm. neighborhoods, and it was always the part of African American neighborhood which touched downtowns. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So it was normally like the business district right, where right. you know was destroyed. So in Louisville, it would have been Old Walnut Street, which right. was the the heart of the you know the Louisville, the Black Louisville business district, mm-hmm. was completely bulldozed, yeah. and you know nothing was ever replaced. Right. You know, and I tell people, you know, it was like. They kind of get a sense of what that was like. You know, imagine if you bulldozed Barstown Road. Mm-hmm. Uh, you start down at Barstown and Baxter, mm-hmm. and you bulldozed everything to the Washington Expressway mm-hmm. on either uh, about three blocks on either side of Barstown right. Road, and then you replaced all that with you know low income subsidized Section Eight housing. Right, right. So how long would the Highlands stay the Highlands? Stay the Highlands. Yeah, yeah. Or Clifton stay Clifton. Mm-hmm. Or Nulu stay Nulu if if you did mm-hmm. that, and it, I was question is no, it wouldn't. Well, that's what I was kind of uh, hoping to get at. Like it's you know it's a little bit the redlining stuff, which had more to do with who lived where, and then you had the urban development stuff, which was just massive transgressive cultural violence over certain areas, and then you've had the policy since then, like you say, that put in low rent housing and things like that. So again, from there, like what do you what do you do when you lose that much when you lose that much infrastructure when you got families that have been scattered like that you said you're optimistic about there's stuff that can be done there are changes that can be made how's it looking you're you're a few years into being very active it's a, it's an uphill battle because <laughs> louisville like most cities doesn't want change mm-hmm. they kind of like things the way they are are they are they troubled um, are people troubled by even the pointing out the problems well no pointing out the problems means that you point to yourself and nobody uh, wants to say mm-hmm. You know, that either my parents, my grandparents, you know, were the cause of right. of these things. No, nobody wants that. And I understand, you know, there's also not a fix. Yeah. So, you know, I know they're investing uh, like 30, I know they got the HOPE, the Choice Neighborhoods Grant, mm-hmm. which is going to invest uh, $30 million from the feds and then hopefully another match from private investors and the city of about another $200 million to quote-unquote revitalize Russell, revitalize, you know, Beecher Terrace. But, you know, these things we have to be very intentional about mm-hmm. 
about how we rebuild lost infrastructure. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, Louisville has a tend to want to pay a lot of lip service and then not kind of follow through, mm -hmm. kind of half-ass the developments, especially in West Louisville and Southwest Jefferson County. It's like, yeah. I can't forget folks out, you know, Dixie Highway, King mm -hmm. Run Road, mm -hmm. you know, area, you know, you get, you know, half-ass development there. And it's, it's a real detriment to the community. Like one of the things uh, that we know we fought about uh, in Russell was the whole Walmart, uh, you know, situation. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and my push for an, an urban Walmart. You know, people still to this day are like, well, why, why, why is that important? You know, mm -hmm. why, why, why does the design of a building matter? People in West Louisville need shopping. People in West Louisville need jobs. Uh, who cares if there's a big parking lot? You know, that's, that's, that's inconsequential. These are things you need. And I'm like, well, you can have both. And this is mm -hmm. kind of like my, you know, some of my, my frustration with Louisville is like, why do we keep wanting less than? Why do you want less than when you can have more than? Don't you have more pride in your city, more pride in your community and town that you can have more? So why is it that Chicago, you know, Philadelphia, uh, Atlanta, Knoxville, you know, D.C., though these towns fall for urban design, for mm -hmm. urban Walmarts, and, and pretty much got them. So why can't, you know, why, why can't we do the same? You know, if you're going to build a Walmart, Walmart says we're not going to put the money in to build anything other than our, a typical suburban store. Yes, the city has given us 500000 and everybody thinks that's great, but, you know, the city just kicked $150 million to the Omni to build, you know, half the Omni. Mm -hmm. What's two to three more million in West Louisville to get a better design, which would, uh, you know, really improve the neighborhood even more? Cause, right. you know, and a lot of people don't understand my, like, I guess, my, my thing on, on design and why it's become, like, so big to me. But, you know, you can see it in downtown Louisville. Like, if you were to walk down Fifth and Broadway, and for those who don't know, the corner of Fifth and Broadway, we have Kendra's headquarters on one corner, the Courier-Journal City Cafe on the other corner, mm -hmm. and then Fifth Street. So now Kendra has kind of rearranged the headquarters. So rather than their main door being on Broadway, the main entrance is on 4th Street. Now, there's no building on 4th Street. They have, like, a big, like, kind of green space with a big circular, you know, driveway. We'll let that slide. And you have the Courier-Journal, which is, you know, up to sidewalk, very urban, and something you can walk and things of that nature. But if you walk down Fifth Street, one of the things you notice is that there's no interaction between the pedestrians and cars and what's on Fifth Street. Because what you have is you have the, uh, on the left-hand side, you have the Courier-Journal's plant where they, you know, make paper, make right. newspaper, things of that right. nature. And it's one giant brick facade with some fake windows. Mm -hmm. And then on the Kindred side, it's just a brick wall with, I think, like a truck entrance. And that's it. So there's no interaction. So people don't feel safe walking down Fifth Street at night because there's nothing there. Yeah, it's like walking down an alley. Yeah, it's like walking down an alley. Yeah. You don't see anything until you almost get to Chestnut, which is almost mm -hmm. a whole block. Mm -hmm. I think of the, the, the Brennan House is kind of between, but that's a museum, whatever. There's a parking lot after that. And then... There's another parking lot on Chestnut Street on the Courage Journal side, so that's that's not safe. So basically what you've done is you killed the block. That's a dead block. Mm -hmm. You go to the next block, you have Pestos, you have another parking lot on the right, then you have another parking lot, then some more buildings, and then there's another parking lot, and there's a parking garage on the right. So that's almost a dead block as well. So mm -hmm. that's like two blocks that are completely dead that nobody really, that nobody no, really goes to or yeah. walks through. So you look at Broadway, which is the, the artery of West Louisville, which goes down the middle. If you start, you know, once you let Walmart build a giant setback, then mm -hmm. you set the precedent, then all the other buildings said, well, why, why do we have to conform mm -hmm. to the land base? We want that setback as well. And once you get those big parking lots mm -hmm. in the front, you no longer have an interaction with pedestrians and walkers and things of that nature. And you suburbanize your urban areas, which you effectively kill your urban areas. Right. And, and studies have shown this. Now, once you start suburbanizing urban areas, you kill urban areas because you kill what makes them unique. They're no longer bikeable, walkable, mm -hmm. you know, kind of sustainable areas. Yeah. Number one. Number two, in that part of West Louisville, on the, on the 18th and Broadway corridor, there's less than one car per household ownership. That's like 0.88% wow. of people own cars. Mm -hmm. So a 650-space parking lot doesn't make any sense, especially when on that corner is the number one bus route. Mm -hmm. So it talked about, well, we can move the bus route in front of Walmart, but then why would you want all those people, the elderly, the young, people with baggage and things of that nature, have to walk through a massive parking lot to yeah. get to the bus? That, that doesn't make 
right. sense. You know, there's a reason we have these design principles in mm-hmm. place. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's why I was kind of I was so passionate about it. You know, then we approached with a compromise. Since you guys are going to build all these outbuildings anyway, put those on Broadway. Keep Walmart where it is. Let's put those on Broadway so you kind of keep that that urban edge. And of course, that went nowhere. Uh, Walmart decided they weren't going to weren't going to move there. But a lot of people hated me for a very long time. <laughs> I, I got a lot of hate mail. You know, I really? take that. No, I take that back. I didn't get any no. hate mail. But on the radio station I'm on, mm-hmm. uh, there's a lot of um, you know ministers and stuff. They have their radio shows like early in the day, you know, mm-hmm. they were giving out my address, <laughs> my telephone number, for like, literally for like three years straight. Jeez, man. My address, my telephone number, you need to knock on this guy's door, you need to give this guy a call, mm. he's doing this, that, and the third, and uh, we need to shut this guy up, yeah. and yeah, it was quite a bit, you know, you know people tried to call my place for employment so I would no longer be employed at mm-hmm. the time. So it, it was a lot, you know, went you know, behind that, mm-hmm. uh, being vilified week in and week out. Uh, but now, you know, Passport is moving to that site. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the YMCA Cross Street Passport's going to build mm-hmm. their urban structure that they want to integrate themselves into mm-hmm. neighborhood. And a lot of my detractors at that point have now come back to me and said, you know what, you were right all along. Good. I mean, you were right. A crappy three years to go through, but. Yeah, there's a lot of crappy. A, yes. <laughs> but there's like, no, you were right. This is going to be much better than Walmart right. because what would have happened in Walmart, any type of small businesses you tried to start, mm-hmm. Walmart would have sucked them out. Yeah. And then, you know, doing the whole negotiations, you know, I first started that whole thing uh, with even with the urban Walmart. My other thing was, well, you know, when they came to D.C. and built an urban urban core, you know, other cities were able to get things like the Walmart development. So they're like, I know Chicago, they have like the Walmart development core. So what mm-hmm. they do is Walmart puts like a um, like a five block radius around the store mm-hmm. on the south side. And they're like, well, okay, we'll put all these small businesses in our flyers. And we'll set aside like five or six thousand mm-hmm. dollars to help invest in and to create small businesses right, right. from the neighborhood. You know, we're guaranteed that you know our jobs will pay about twelve dollars an hour. You know, for our jobs, and we'll guarantee that we'll at least have two hundred employees in the store for at least six, you know, for at least like like three or four years. And then we'll make sure that we'll hire seventy percent of people from these zip codes around mm-hmm. our store. Mm-hmm. You see, we here in town, we didn't get none of that. None of that was even up for discussion. When I brought those things up, well, mm-hmm. I was like, well, in D.C., they got this. You know, mm-hmm. D.C., they got $15 an hour, and they were able to get this. You know, Chicago, they got this. And Knoxville, they were able to get this. So what are we getting? And the response I would get was, you know, we're not those guys. We're not Chicago. Mm-hmm. We're not D.C. So the pushback you were getting wasn't even from Walmart itself. It was from the people here who were trying to get Walmart here yeah, who wouldn't like, even negotiate. Yeah, wouldn't yeah. negotiate. And it was like, you know, you know, you know we're not... And they were like, you know, we're not D.C., we're, we're not D.C., we're not mm-hmm. Chicago, we're not big cities like that. So it's almost like we'll just tell what we can get. And that, that annoyed me because I know when Walmart went in other neighborhoods, and that's why I always tell folks, so if they were going to build a Walmart in the Highlands, mm-hmm. they would have neighborhood discussions. Mm-hmm. You know, Walmart would come and they would meet the neighbors, they would talk to the neighbors about this is what we're going to do, mm-hmm. the developers would meet, this is our plans. And what's slow when none of that happened. And my thing was, why are you going to treat me any differently than you're going to treat the Highlands, they're going to treat Clifton, that you treat Prospect, mm-hmm. that you're going to treat Anchorage. And then for folks in West Louisville, why are you accepting less? We should not accept less. We should not accept, we're, we're no less of a people mm-hmm. than the folks that live in the Highlands, Prospect, or anyplace else. Yes, we don't have money, yeah, but no, we're still people. And we still <clears throat> you know, deserve the same level of respect that you give everybody else. Mm-hmm. And you're not going to come and just, just disrespect us like yeah. that. There's a weird, I, I used to get in trouble for saying this was just Louisville. And I realize now it's it's a bigger issue. But I used to I used to say, you know, Louisville has this weird thing about celebrating mediocrity. And anything that gets in the way of that mediocrity is looked at as, as troublemaking on one side or the other of things. Um, and, you know, you mentioned the Omni, which, you know, I know people who who tried to upgrade the Omni, who tried to make it more street level friendly. And even a massive, massive development like that. You know, people got thrown under the bus just trying to get like, um, what's the backside of the Omni? Is that uh, well, third? It's Third Street. It's, yeah. a, it's a major thoroughfare. And it's going to be, you know, blank wall. Yeah. And, you know, once again, that's now Third Street is a dead block. So when you try mm-hmm. to revitalize downtown, if you have a lot of dead blocks, it makes it difficult. Mm-hmm. Because if it's like if you're, if you're visiting and you're staying at the Omni, you know, you could walk over to Fourth Street and we could walk some other places, but it's still... You know, like you can't get to Nulu from there. You don't feel safe walking to right. Nulu. Not inviting. Yeah, it's, it's not inviting. There's a lot of neighbors, there's a lot of parts of downtown that really aren't that inviting, yeah. which makes it 
you know, difficult to, to kind of walk or want to walk. Or, right. You know, we don't connect. We haven't done a good job of connecting the neighborhoods mm-hmm. to downtown. Like, we still have a barrier between Smoketown and downtown. Yeah, yeah. 9th Street effectively cuts off Russell, Portland, mm-hmm. and Shipping Port in California from downtown. And it seems like people will, will talk about this when it comes to, you know, how, it, how it's going to impact tourism, you know, and that side of things. But they don't seem to either make the connection or want to make the connection to that as, you know, in terms of how it affects everyday life for people. You know, those are the very fam- same factors that are inviting for somebody who's in town from, you know, Iowa for a convention. It's the same thing that for somebody that lives in Russell. Same factors make it inviting, make it usable. Yeah. Well, I, I think the problem is, is that we have compartmentalized our development, mm-hmm. especially over the center city too much. Mm-hmm. You know, so this is this district and this is yeah, its own yeah. little district and this is this. And, you know, we really haven't connected things back. And that's one of the things that, you know, if you look at, you know, Louisville, when, when Louisville was like really thriving and the downtown was thriving, it's because all your neighborhoods were connected to downtown and fed into right, downtown. Right. But once you, you know, urban renewal, you cut off the black neighborhoods to the east and then to the west of downtown, effectively cutting downtown off. And now you've made downtown this island. And it's not connected mm-hmm. really to the rest of the city, so it's it's kind of you know, it's it's dying out. Yeah. You now we add things, we add attractions to kind of bring people in. You know, but you really want to you, you really want to get that real buy-in mm-hmm. until you can really start connecting the neighborhoods back to downtown, let them feed into the urban core. And it's got to be something that, like you were talking about before, about um, how you know the funding is going to be allocated. There's got to be a certain organic aspect to that, because otherwise you wind up with sort of it's like they build islands and the islands become branded and that becomes a location but it doesn't you know feed out or connect to the rest of the the community around it and to me the most the biggest example of this and i don't want to slam anybody but you know i still will not call east market nulu because to me nulu is the brand for a retail fantasy land of a couple of blocks that doesn't really long term it's good for the area i guess it's better to have you know busyness than not but it still is in of itself, you know, a destination and doesn't take into account the fact that it's a destination inside of a neighborhood, inside of a community, you know. Well, yeah, and that's, you know, and that goes back to, once again, bad design choices. Like yeah. having I-65 come right down the heart of the city, mm-hmm. come right down to the middle of Jefferson County, kind of cut it in half and you cut it and you kind of cut, you know, but that, that East Market Street from downtown to West Market Street. Mm-hmm. Ninth Street does the same thing mm-hmm. for neighborhoods you know, west of downtown. And, you know, I know, I know the city has plans to re to try to put those things back together, which is great because they need yeah. to be put back together. I think another <clears throat> uh, big need in this town would be, like, we need, like, street, we need we, we, we need much better mass transit. We need yeah. yeah. streetcars and we need light rail to really kind of tie everything together. You know, like you said, this is like the, you know, Louisville's like a city of neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. Well, imagine, like, Louisville almost like a quilt. Yeah. Like a, a patchwork quilt. Mm-hmm. To me, like streetcars and light rails, the thread that ties all those different patches together. And uh, before Jerry Abramson killed T2, Louisville mm-hmm. uh, would have had that. Mm-hmm. You know, we would have been the trendsetters in this region for light rail. We had light rail on our radar before Charlotte, before Norfolk, Virginia, mm-hmm. before Cincinnati, before Nashville, and all these other places. And you know we now kind of we abandoned it, mm-hmm. and but if we would have went ahead and did it then, when you know you still had Democratic presidents, you still had Republican presidents who were willing to put money in transportation, you had a lot of federal dollars, you know, for it. You now by 2019, you would have had about three, maybe four different lines. We mm-hmm. would have been well ahead of the curve. You know, now we find ourselves once again like way behind the curve. Now you have like Nashville. You know, they said we're going to raise a billion dollars. We're doing light rail. We're doing streetcars, and we're going to completely modernize our complete transportation system. And this is what we're doing. Cincinnati has their streetcar line in now. Yeah, they work on another one. Charlotte has like two working on their third. Norfolk, Virginia is working on their second. You know, so we've. You know, once again, you know, we've, we've kind of fallen behind the curve. And there's no reason for us to fall behind the curve. And we were so far ahead of the curve. All right. So so from something that is as, you know, ongoingly contentious as development of the community on that level, literal, you know, brick and mortar development and that sort of thing, because I'd love to go off down the, you know, the path of, uh, you know, getting your thoughts on Scala and stuff <laughs> and stuff like that. But that's another hour. 
So I kind of want to end on what I think is sort of an interesting and positive note. You were part of the organizing of a massive screening and party of Black Panther? Yes. Uh, tell me a little bit of that. But not, I mean, setting aside the phenomenon that is Black Panther, you know, the movie. But like, what, what did you see in advance of the movie coming out where you thought, this is something we need to hype and it means this? To the community, you know, you know, from, you know it's interesting because when I first, okay, when I was watching uh, Captain America: Civil War, mm-hmm. and he said Black Panther's gonna be in there. You know, he was like never really, he was like never really one of my favorite yeah, yeah. superheroes, and I was kind of, I was more curious to see like what Marvel was gonna do with Black Panther, like how are they gonna do the story, what's gonna be like the Avengers cartoon. I was just kind of curious, and mm-hmm. once I saw Chadwick Boseman and I saw the way he was portrayed in Civil War, I was like. Wow, man, the Russo brothers did like a, an awesome job. This is this is great. Mm-hmm. And then he tapped Ryan Coogler to the to direct, and I was like, man, okay, I like Ryan Coogler. I've seen the Fruitville Station. Mm-hmm. Uh, what he did with Cree was was masterful. Yeah. It's probably like one of the best Rocky films outside, like the first one. He made me care about Rocky. <laughs> <laughs> he made you know he has slash you know he made a slash stone act. So yeah, yeah, it's it's good every once in a while somebody has, can do that. Yeah, he hasn't acted like in decades. <laughs> So, you know, this was, I was like, man, okay, he's, he's like, really talented. You know, it's mm. his third film, so I was, was kind of excited. And I saw he got, like, a like $150 million budget, and I was like, okay, they've, you know, given him the money to do, like, you know, like, like a real movie. And then I saw they up to the $200 million. I was like, well, okay, they're actually giving him, like, big budget movie, which has me believe that, one, the Marvel execs must have really loved what he was doing. Mm-hmm. The screenplay that he wrote mm-hmm. and, and, and him and his other writer wrote. Because the extra fifty million dollars, that's that's quite a bit. Especially for a guy who's only his third movie. Yeah. That's 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 saying a lot. Yeah, that's big uh, trust. Yeah. That's a lot of trust. And then once I saw the people he was hiring and he was kinda of talking about like what they envisioned Wakanda looked like, what they envisioned mm-hmm. um, you know, what the story mm-hmm. and how much care and how much research they did, I was like, Okay, this is this is gonna be huge. Mm-hmm. About about a year out, I was like, okay, this is going to be, this is going to be huge. I think everybody kind of wants to see this. And as the previews started kicking, I kind of saw some of this, the scenes, things of that nature. That's why I was like, yeah, I think a lot of kids would would love this. And that's even before I even knew about the plot. Mm-hmm. So uh, I worked with a group called the Pair Group and Moment Street Member, a business organization I, I belong to here in town. Because we've done movie mixes before, for like uh, mm-hmm. Jackie Robinson's movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, 42, we did one mm-hmm. for uh, the movie about uh, Jesse Owens, which I really didn't like too much, but that's neither here nor there. That's a yeah. discussion for another day. So I was like, you know, Black Panther would be huge, and we can get like, you know, we can get some kids to come out there and that kind of people rally around and kind of see what it's like. And it was the event. You know, it's one of the few things actually lived, lived up to the hype. Mm-hmm. You know, the movie like really, really lived up to the hype. And my work with, you know, trying to get the Quinn Performing Arts Center started and rehab Quinn Chapel, everything, this all kind of, you know, kind of fell you know, together, because like I say, even though I still do sports, it's, my, it's now my full-time gig, you know, I, my love for the arts has not changed as much. Mm-hmm. I still see the arts as, you know, that, that vehicle. And especially like for black actors and actresses, direct, directors, writers, gaffs, grips, and everything else, you know, Black Panther's huge because you don't see a lot, well, you don't see a lot of like, quote-unquote, black movies. Mm-hmm. A lot of movies with a large black cast, written, directed, a lot of people behind the camera. You know, for a lot of these actors, this may be like literally their only gig they'll have. Because I'm sure they'll do, they've already announced Black Panther 2. Right. You're going to see some actors in the in Infinity War and in Avengers 4, which is coming up next year. And then Black Panther, at least he'll at least get three movies. Yeah. So for a lot of these guys, this actually may be like literally their only gig because uh, they did a, uh, like not a documentary, but they did like this little YouTube show Talking about like okay, what projects you know, do the actors in Black Panther have coming up next? Mm-hmm. Literally, only like two or three of them had like something coming up next. Mm-hmm. For most of them, this was it. And you know, for a lot of guys I know, like you know, parts are far in between. So a lot of guys are eating. Hopefully, with the success of Luke Cage on Netflix, mm-hmm. uh, with Black Lightning on the CW, I mm-hmm. think that was like the highest rated show for a while. No, hopefully, you know, kind of start to see more actors, more actresses, more people of color kind of get their shot now and then get it and then hold on to it. So for you, it's not just about, because <clears throat> kind of like what you were saying before, it's not just about identification, you know, for people who are who are watching the movies and watching the TV shows, but it's literally, it's about work. Yes. It's about opportunity to work. It is their, about work. You know, yeah. one of the things that you know, I've harped on, you know, all my 
Rebel Rousing and Russell was that, you know, Louisville needs, you know, like the sectors you need, you need to concentrate on to, that you can grow and expand. Mm -hmm. And, you know, to me, film was always one of those things that Louisville was always just a natural fit. Mm -hmm. You know, film, plays, or that type of art is just mm -hmm. a natural fit because the foundation's here. I always thought Louisville was going after biotech stuff. That was, that was ignorant. Like it doesn't connect. It doesn't connect. Yeah. Now, Louisville's, I mean, U of L's not a research institution at that level. It's not going to work unless you're really going to put, like, some serious money into U of L and UK to make them, like, tier one research institutions, mm -hmm. and the state's not going to do that. But film art, visual arts, plays, and music, that's things Louisville can do because you have the infrastructure. You have a performing arts elementary school, mm -hmm. performing arts middle school, performing arts college, and now you have the Kentucky College of Art, and they're trying to get their own space now. Mm -hmm. So you have that foundation there. You now, why not build on it? So it's like, if you look at Infinity Wars, it's filmed in Atlanta, Georgia. Mm -hmm. Matter of fact, all the Marvel movies mm -hmm. are filmed in Atlanta, Georgia. Atlanta has now become like the new Hollywood. Because most of your big budget films are filmed in Atlanta, Georgia. Mm -hmm. And when I talk to my friends, a lot of my friends that are black and actors, they've all moved to Atlanta, Georgia because that's like black Hollywood now. Because mm -hmm. like most of your TV series, a lot of your TV series are filmed in Georgia. Yeah. Walking Dead, uh, like Black Lightning, and you know, most of the things is Atlanta. Now, yeah, it's, filmed, it's <laughs> Atlanta. It's all filmed in yeah. Atlanta. <clears throat> I think that could be us. Again, I could keep talking. Uh, I know we both got to, have to go. Um, so mostly, man, thanks for coming in today. And, and you are, I'm already just going to say I'm going to have you back as soon as I can because there's more stuff to talk about. Yeah. Um, more work that I know you're doing and changes afoot and all that kind of good stuff. Also, I want to keep catching up because <laughs> I haven't seen you in several years. So thanks again for coming in. Oh, thanks for having me. Appreciate it.